This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've lived and worked in Fayetteville, Arkansas for 30 years, having moved here from Dallas, Texas, where I got my education at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School. I don't know why I threw that in today. I just did. (laughs) Anyway, I wanted to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who might already be very interested in psychological and emotional issues. I wanted to try to answer questions for those of you who might have just been diagnosed or you're having some kind of problem that you don't understand. But I also really wanted to reach a third group of you, a group of you who might be very skeptical, who might have known someone who was in therapy that said, oh, that didn't help me at all. But sadly, you're unhappy enough to listen in or be looking for answers in mental health podcasts. And I'm glad you're here at Self Work. Today, we're going to focus on how to help your teen with depression, and we're doing that through an interview with a wonderful guest, 19-year-old Sadie Sutton, who's host of the podcast, She Persisted. She was first diagnosed with depression when she was 13, and by the age of 14, had been hospitalized four times for severe depression, anxiety, and suicidality. Realizing things were going nowhere fast, her parents took her to McLean Hospital, a residential inpatient program run by Harvard, and it was there life changed. Obviously, I need to put a trigger warning on this episode because Sadie does talk about suicidality. Why should you listen and share her story? Suicide is the second leading cause of death among people aged 15 to 24 in the U.S. 20% of high school students report serious thoughts of suicide, and 9% have made attempts. This is in the U.S. One of those people is Ohio State football player Harry Miller. He revealed on Twitter that he attempted suicide, but he shared his struggles with his coach, and he got help. He announced his medical retirement from football this year, and that Twitter post has been shared more than 10 thousand times. He writes, this is not an issue reserved for the far and away. It is in our homes. It is in our conversations. It is in the people we love. Let me say that again. This is not an issue reserved for the far and away. It is in our homes. It is in our conversations. It is in the people we love. Here are some of the salient points that you're going to learn from Sadie. Her parents, especially her dad, didn't realize or even perhaps believe that a teenager could be clinically depressed, and his efforts to snap her out of it or tough love made things worse. Here's the second. Prior to McLean, none of her therapists or the program she entered asked for her commitment to the process of healing they proposed. In fact, at McLean, they flatly said that her stay would do her no good if she wasn't going to choose to do the work. They said, everyone here has chosen to be here. That's quite different from a lot of programs where teenagers are forced in or they're in therapy because their parents made them come. I've actually said the same thing to many teenagers. If you're not wanting to be here, that's okay. I'm concerned about you. I think you should be here, but you've got to want to do this work. And actually what Sadie says is that sense of her choice is what caused her to actually do the work of healing. 
Third thing is her parents also took part in family therapy and learned a new way of talking about conflict, of expressing emotions, negotiating, and of being aware of their impact on their children and their children's impact on them. The whole family benefited. She also talks a lot about DBT therapy, which she calls evidence-based, meaning that DBT researchers have studied their methods and have found that they actually help with emotional stability and rational decision-making. I actually covered DBT in an episode just a couple of weeks ago, and I'll have that link in your show notes. So she's quite an advocate for DBT, but please know that DBT is not the only evidence-based treatment, but it's certainly one that worked for her, and she is a cheerleader for it. But before we begin this interview, I am so excited to introduce you to another new sponsor here at SelfWork, Magnesium Breakthrough. As always, I've tried it myself, and I will tell you what kind of results I've had. They have a wonderful offer for self-work listeners, so please listen in to what could be the start of a more restful sleep for you, and thus, a more stable mood and good daily energy. Here's Magnesium Breakthrough. One of the best things you can do to improve your health is get at least seven hours of quality sleep every night. Now, I know it's hard to get that much sleep. Your mind keeps you awake. Your partner snores. You can't get comfortable. You wake up early and can't fall asleep again. But it's so important because your body heals itself as you sleep. Would you like to know an easy way to get more quality sleep every night? Make sure you're getting enough magnesium, believe it or not. Around 75% of people don't have enough of it, which helps explain why so many people have sleep problems. Most magnesium supplements are not full spectrum, unfortunately. There are actually seven unique forms of magnesium. This is something I didn't know. And you must get all of them if you want to experience its calming, sleep-enhancing effects. So when Magnesium Breakthrough contacted me, I switched from the supplements I'd been using for a long time to theirs. And wow, what a difference. The major difference it's made for me is when I wake up in the morning at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock, I can go back to sleep and it's so much better. So now I'm recommending Magnesium Breakthrough to you by Bioptimizers. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to www.magbreakthrough, that's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H dot com slash self-work to save up to, get this, a whopping 42%. Again, you can save up to 42% on Magnesium Breakthrough when you go to www.magbreakthrough.com slash self-work. I hope it works as well for you as it has for me. So now I'd like to introduce you to Sadie Sutton, a young woman who's fought off severe depression and anxiety by adopting a new way of working through her thoughts and emotions using DBT or dialectical behavior therapy. And she's now an undergrad studying psychology at the University of Penn. It was delightful talking with her, and she so wants to help teens and their families to talk together about mental illness and heal also together. Sadie, one of the things that I was so struck by, I was able to listen to some of your podcasts this morning before we were on, and I'm so impressed with what you are doing with your experience of having depression. How did, first, catch us up on the story of how you began knowing you needed help and knowing you needed treatment and recognizing it. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, so we just recorded a long episode all about perfectly hidden depression. And I, so many of the things that you mentioned resonated with me, including that belief that you, you don't deserve help, that others, um, shouldn't be helping you, that you're not deserving of that love and support. And so while I had all of these symptoms with disrupted sleep and really low self-esteem, unhealthy relationships, not feeling seen or heard or loved by those around me, I'm starting to pull back from school, all of these typical depression symptoms that you saw, I didn't know what it was. I just thought that was what my life looked like. And that began the end of middle school. So 13 Okay. Eighth grade was when things really took a dive. And I had been a fly on the wall then. What what would I have noticed that what were the things that you loved Mm -hmm. and you were very interested in that you pulled back from? I I almost would say it was more like an addition of things at that point before I did eventually like really draw back and struggle to show up for school. I wasn't really involved in any extracurriculars. I didn't have a lot of friends because I was just so isolated. But initially it was more conflict with parents, unhealthy relationships that became extremely codependent. Um isolating in my room all the time, um, a lot more tearful, not really talking at all. There was no open line of communication with anyone about what I was feeling, what I was thinking, what I was going through. And so my mom noticed the the sleep disruption, the increase in conflict. There was this shift in mood. Um, and there was like a dampen on the way I was presenting. And so um, I had been meeting with a therapist for about a year prior to that, but didn't really feel a connection, would go into these sessions and just like run out the clock. And when I say run out the clock, it wasn't like, let me talk about other things. It was like stare at the floor, say nothing for 50 minutes. So, yeah. So I ended up no longer. I was like, I'm not going. It's not helping. I really don't want to go. Um, And losing that potential line of communication, my mom was like, something needs to change. And so I ended up going to my pediatrician and he did the typical depression screening and was like, have you lost interest in things? Is your sleep disrupted? Um, Are you feeling hopeless? Are you feeling alone? Um, And I'd never seen all the symptoms that I was experiencing listed in one place. Up until that point, I was only 13. So I didn't remember the, the beginning of my life and this depression had crept up on me over many years. And looking back, I can realize that what led me to that point was belief systems that I didn't deserve love, that I would never be good enough for my parents, that I was deserving of being depressed. And so I I didn't have that insight at that point that came with many months of treatment down the road. Um, But this depression built so slowly that I just thought this is what my baseline was. I could articulate that other people could be happy and joyful and healthy, but this was just what my life looked like. And it was different. Was depression a part of your family history? Was anyone else in your family depressed? Some, somewhat. I had um, my paternal grandfather committed suicide. He struggled with bipolar. And so, um, like you mentioned in our interview, my dad did have that mental health influence in his life. And even him still, he didn't realize the signs weren't acknowledged. Um, and I think that's something that really needs to be improved within the teenage demographic, just acknowledging that these symptoms can be very real. They can um, be very serious. Um, and and the struggle can be just as prevalent in teenagers as in adults later on in life. So 
I ended up going to this pediatrician appointment. I felt so seen. I just broke down into tears because all of these things that I was experiencing, there was a name for it. Um, and while I was somewhat aware of these ideas of like mental health and depression, I was just so in my own world with blinders on, so consumed by my suffering and stress and struggle. And my my friends hadn't started to go through any of that yet. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't really that broader awareness of like, should I like Googling depression tests or like self-screening? That was not even on the table at that point. So to have that first validation, it was like, wow, like this is what I'm experiencing. And I, I felt seen. And so he did understand that there was really no line of communication into what I was experiencing. The the diagnosis test really did show that I was struggling in a very big way. I was struggling a lot. These symptoms had been going on for um, a while at that point. And so my mom had scheduled a psychiatrist appointment that afternoon. And he was like, here's how this is going to go. You're going to go to the psychiatrist appointment or you're going to spend some time in the hospital because there was no communication. There was no insight. And I wasn't talking to anyone. I would... I remember like we went on a really long drive to get to this doctor's appointment earlier in the day and I just had was completely shut down like no talking so physically fatigued I was falling asleep anytime I was sitting somewhere for a longer period of time and so I went to the psychiatrist appointment with all the events of the day I just was continuing to feel overwhelmed and stressed and in these emotions and didn't say anything during the appointment really was shut down and I think at one point she was like can you draw a pie chart of your feelings and I don't remember exactly what I drew but it was something along the lines of like a giant circle and I was like sad she was like okay so from there I you ended up express it that way rather mm -hmm. than verbally you just didn't I mean yeah. the ability to put words with ideas is something that really yeah. suffers with classic depression and there's so there's such a spectrum of emotions like even now if someone's like what are you feeling there's this app it's called mood meter and it has these four quadrants of different emotions that you can experience and there's like 50 different words and depending on like the intensity of the emotion and how positive or negative it is there's all these words and so when you don't really know exactly what you're feeling when you haven't done the work to understand the why like you um emphasize putting those words to your experience is so difficult and so you betcha the best i could do was sad um and if now i'd be like hopeless alone isolated um just stressed out burnt out all of these emotions um but that that capacity wasn't there at that point and so I ended up doing my first hospitalization immediately after that. I spent um, probably about 10 days in the adolescent psychiatric unit. And after that, um, during the next year. Let me stop you. Just say, so they hospitalized you. Were you suicidal at the time? I was not. You were not suicidal. I was just severely depressed. And it's something that's very interesting in California, which I was actually talking to my therapist about yesterday, is how quick they are to hospitalize people. I, I'm sitting here in another state and that yeah. would, that would not happen right right and so it's it's a little crazy i remember there was one kid um that i was hospitalized with at one point where he had told someone he had like lied that he had self-harmed or that he wanted to but he hadn't actually and he was in the hospital and he was like can someone please just let me out of here this was a miscommunication they were like sorry 72 hours you got to run out the clock um 
So it's that's something that's very unique about California. And um, the more I dive into this industry and world, the more apparent that becomes. But during the next year, um, I did everything you can imagine locally. I did intensive outpatient. I did outpatient dialectical behavioral therapy, family therapy, individual therapy. I was meeting with the psychiatrist and trying all of these different medications um, and nothing was really working. I ended up being hospitalized three more times during that next year for suicidal ideation and a suicide attempt. So you were getting worse, actually. I was getting a lot worse. And looking back, I felt so isolated. I felt so unseen. I felt so uncared for. All that these hospitalizations did was an influx of care and support and love. Wait a minute. Uh, Repeat that, because it sounds like the more that was available for you, the more you felt like it still wasn't, you, you couldn't absorb it. Is that what you're saying? No, the... Whenever I felt extremely isolated and unseen, the hospital was almost the opposite. It was like my parents were coming to visit. There were nurses and doctors acknowledging that something was wrong. And it was this external validation that something isn't okay with you. And that's seen and that is acknowledged to an extreme degree. Like I was continuing to retry these different outpatient treatments. Um, These symptoms were continuing, but especially in my home environment that feeling seen her validated it wasn't present okay. um so the hospital was really like a, a 180 from that and became reinforced if that makes sense oh so it was actually the difference between what yes. happened in the hospital and then you'd go home and there would be this that wouldn't be uh available yeah so it made you actually get worse Yeah. So I tried everything locally and I got to a point during the fall winter of my freshman year of high school where I'd been hospitalized four times in 12 months. I was severely suicidal. I was fairly depressed. I struggled with self-harm, eating disorder eating disorder behaviors, unhealthy relationships, conflict with my family, pretty much anything you can imagine um, tied to struggling with emotion regulation and struggling with asking for help and getting my needs met in a healthy way. And so my parents researched what is the best residential treatment program for teenagers that are struggling with depression. And they found dialectical behavioral therapy and all the evidence supporting its ability to help teenagers struggling with depression and anxiety and emotion regulation, which is what I was struggling with. So I ended up at Three East McLean Hospital, which is an amazing program right outside of Boston. And I remember my parents and I flew across the country. I was terrified because I Googled and I was like, hospital from girl interrupted? former asylum what is happening i was so scared um and i was just told to pack up my entire life and i would be moving across the country and there was this window between when i knew i was going to be going to treatment and when i actually went so i remember going to school and being given all these assignments that i would just never turn in or teachers talking about things that were happening next week and next week i would be in a hospital in a a mental hospital on the other side of the country and so it was a really odd scary experience and real a hundred percent and so we we went to boston and we went to the intake meeting and the first question they ask is like do you want your parents in the room or do you want them outside and i was like they're gone. They're sitting in the hallway. They just flown across the country to support me in this process that they had researched and and dedicated themselves to. I mean, like 
did you discover a lot of anger because you oh, I thought angry. that they were my I, I blamed them for everything I was experiencing I was like they raised me this must be their fault okay. other teenagers don't feel like this other teenagers don't have this worldview so what did you do wrong mm-hmm. what did you do to make my emotions be like this my belief systems be like this this is your fault there was so much anger there um and and I was so invalidated by them. I felt so unloved. I didn't think I deserved their love. I didn't think I would ever be good enough for them. So it was kind of this really desiring that acceptance and validation that I felt like I had never gotten. And then as like almost a defense mechanism, along with all this confusion and overwhelm, being like, this is your fault. This is not on me. And so we did this intake meeting and they asked me like, so do you want to be here? What do you know about DBT? And I was like, this isn't going to work. I've done DBT twice through. Um, I This is just what my baseline is. I'm meant to be depressed. And these were Harvard-affiliated um, number one hospital in the country. I was like, you are not able to help me. And they were like, in the nicest way possible, Sadie, <laughs> we've seen thousands of patients exactly like you. This is exactly Hi. what we specialize in. Unfortunately, you are not special. (laughs) This is what we do and we can help you. But they made it very clear that if I didn't want to be a willing participant and that if I didn't see the wisdom in this process, wisdom and wise mind is a huge part of DBT and it's that ability to harness the rational side of you and understand the evidence there and the emotional side, being willing to trust others with your mental health and to support you and believe that they have your best interest. Um, so they were like, can you cultivate the wisdom and the the trust to let us help you? And I was like, I'll think about it. And they, they did say like, as a teenager, there are other options. There's a lot of programs out there where your parents sign on a line and you go for 12 months and not, they don't need your consent. You don't need to be a part of this process. And so that definitely scared me. I wanted to be involved in this decision. I wanted to be a participant in my recovery. And so I went back to the hotel. I ordered some room service. I watched The Bachelor, took a moment. And the next day I began my residential treatment journey. And so the fact that they gave you agency, the fact that they said, you know, if if you don't want to work this program, you're not, we can help you, but if you're not going to work the program, then it's just not going to work. So we won't take you here. It would be a waste of all of our time. And they said, every girl you see here has chosen to be here. They want to be here. So Mm -hmm. I pinpoint that moment is when that shift took place from being from kind of going through the motions of my mental health journey and therapy and treatment to being invested in it, to cultivating enough self-compassion if I could even fathom it to want to get better, to believe that that was possible, to trust others to help me and believe that they really did want me to get better and feel better and that maybe that was possible. And so during the next 14 weeks, their typical stay was like six to eight weeks. I was there for 14. I did a a ton of work. There was a lot of um, skills education with DBT. There was a lot of family therapy where I unpacked these belief systems, these dynamics. I learned how to be vulnerable with my parents and tell them when I was feeling overwhelmed and when I was having an emotion, which was like... this seemed like the biggest, most scary thing ever to so be. How like, was that I'm different from the family therapy that you'd had before? It was 
there's a couple of things that were different. One was that I kind of was now an active participant in the in the therapy process. The other is that the three E's program at McLean, part of what you're signing on to is the parents do a parent group every week and they learn the DBT skills as well. Okay. So I learned them day in and day out. All the parents would meet together. They would learn their validation. They would learn how to make requests to the kid. They would learn about why it's so important to have your physical needs met to decrease emotional vulnerability. So they were learning to be more effective. They were learning to be more skillful and learning how to support me. And the other opportunity that DBT presents is the ability to change family dynamics. And so the parents are signing on to say like, okay, maybe we'd be willing to change this like way of punishment or this argument dynamic or um, the way that we communicate our love to the child, that kind of thing. And so while prior to that, we would go into a room and kind of maybe talk back and forth, kind of argue with each other. Now everyone was open and willing to make shifts. They were acknowledging that things needed to change and there really was the willingness to explore that change and in, in you, a lot of you ways. have siblings that participated in this they were young so i'm the oldest and i was 14 when i started at mclean so they were 12 10 and 8 so they did visit they were terrified <laughs> they did visit me in the mental hospital and they were like what is going on please never make us come here again <laughs> um so they just knew that I, I was working on my mental health and I was gone. And that was definitely hard because I became the identified patient in the family and all the focus was on me um, because my emotions and struggle was taking up so much space. And it was like crisis mode every other night when I would have these like breakdowns almost. So now that I'm back home, they know about dbt my mom is like teaching them skills she's like okay you need to do validation there like where's the repair in the relationship can we do a chain analysis on what just happened there and they're like oh please stop i don't want to do this um so now that they're older those dynamics are still at play um but because they were so young they weren't like sitting in on the sessions or anything So let me ask you something sadie yes sort of a pragmatic question that i'm sure you've been asked before Obviously, your parents had the ability to send you to these places and to pay for yes. it. You have insurance or whatever. What's your best advice to, to people your age that don't have those kinds of opportunities? When you are in crisis mode, there's a lot of different things that you can do. I would say the biggest thing is trying to cultivate that self-compassion to want to get better, to want that for yourself. When you say self-compassion, how would you define it? I very like in a generous definition because the self-compassion that I was using when I decided to get better was like maybe in a far, far off land, I could maybe not be depressed every day. <laughs> like that was like the belief that was there. I had so much self-hatred, such low self-esteem. I believed I was unlovable. So the self-compassion was like, maybe it is possible that I could feel better. I wasn't like, I will feel better. I wasn't like if I take these steps, things will change. It was like just opening the idea that I could feel better and that I could be supported and that things could change. That was all I could kind of um, contemplate at that point. So whatever that looks like for you, obviously, optimally, it would be, I, I want to get better. I want to live a life that I love. I know that I am deserving of love and I'm deserving of happiness and I can get to that point if I put in the work. Mm -hmm. But if for you, it's just changing your 
mental narrative from uh, life isn't worth living, everything is hopeless to maybe possibly life could be worth living. And I can have that little sliver of hope. That is kind of what I mean by that. And I didn't have the greatest experience at the therapeutic boarding school that I went to. A lot of them are very unregulated. Um, the one that I went to was the best one that my parents could find. And even then there were no psychologists on staff. Um, the highest, uh, there was one or two MFTs on staff, 40 girls living together, struggling with mental health issues that had many of them had just come out of wilderness programs. No one wanted to be there. It was really chaotic. And yeah, not the most uh, effective, but I had just done all of this intensive work at residential. I had all of these DBT skills. I had this foundation of no longer being depressed, of wanting to get better, of believing it was possible because I'd made these changes in belief systems and relationships and behaviors. So was it your choice to not go home after after McLean or... It wasn't. I really did want to go home. I was like, things are better. I feel better. And looking back, it's a good thing I didn't go home because that home environment was so invalidating and traumatic and stressful. So I really did need that kind of grace period to learn how to maintain the progress I'd made, continue to stay stable, and then re-enter um, back to junior year of high school and be, be healthy and effective in my home life. Um, but I didn't necessarily want to. It was something that I was like told, this is the next step. This is our clinical recommendation. And then my parents were like, okay, which programs can we find? Here are two. They toured them. I wasn't part of that. They kind of reported back and I helped kind of make the decision about which one I went to. So how would you say your family environment has changed? How did your parents change? So one of the best examples I would say is with my dad because it was like a, a night and day shift and you listen to the episode with him it our relationship was initially that he didn't realize teenagers could be depressed he had no idea I was depressed for probably like six months I was sleeping on my parents floor on a blow-up mattress because they didn't trust me to be safe they didn't know if I would make it through the night I I felt safer almost sleeping next to them, which I was a very independent kid. So that was kind of like an interesting dynamic. But they would wake up in the morning. They would get ready to drop us off at school and for work and to start the day. And I would stay in bed be like, no, 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 Sadie. And he'd tell um, a little... Um, Oh my goodness, he'd tell our Amazon Echo to play symphony music at volume 10. And he'd be like, if you don't go out and get out of bed, you're not going to go to school. You're not going to get into college. You're not going to get a job. You'll be homeless for the rest of your life, like complete catastrophizing. Um, or he'd be like, come on, Sadie, like, let's get up, let's go. And that was his best attempt at supporting me. <laughs> and so um, that was the initial state that we were at. No really awareness that I was struggling, no ability to kind of validate that. And after working through a lot at McLean and learning the skills, he was able to say, I don't really understand what you're experiencing, but I see that you're struggling. I see that you're in a lot of pain. And a really important way that I communicated that to him was through my diary card. So in DBT, you track your emotions, you track your skills use, you track um, how suicidal you're feeling. And I would show these to him and it would be like eight out of nine across the board or nine out of nine. And he was able to be like, wow, if every single day she is at an eight or a nine out of 10 for the worst she's ever felt, she is in a lot of pain. And I can at least appreciate that. And 
now he's a huge fan of validation. There's still a little bit of some education missing there because he'll be like, I validated you. And I'll be like, I don't feel validated. Explain to listeners what you mean by validation. I yes. know what you mean, but what is Yes, of course. Validation? So validation is the idea that you create almost an emotional space for someone. You are acknowledging what they're experiencing. You are appreciating it. You don't have to agree with it. It's things that are subjective. So it's emotions, belief systems. You don't really validate behaviors. You could validate why someone has engaged in in a behavior. Um, And again, you don't have to agree with it. So a really great example is like political views. You could be like, I can see why you believe that. Or I, you are very passionate about this political candidate, but you don't have to agree. And so it's the same thing with mental health issues and if you have healthy relationships, you're probably doing it all the time. You're saying, wow, that's really difficult or that's really challenging or I see you or reflecting back to the person using body language that shows you're present and paying attention and caring about them. Um, so it's a pretty basic skill, but it's something that if you were not doing it, it's essential to build into the relationship or very quickly becomes a very unhealthy, unenjoyable, ineffective dynamic. And so um my yeah my my parents are huge fans of validation so being able to have those skills in our toolbox was a game changer um being able to communicate to them that i was growing up and living in a home in a home environment where i felt unloved and unseen and unvalidated they had no idea so to just for them to be able to kind of under not even understand but just appreciate that and appreciate that even though they had love for me and they cared about me, I wasn't experiencing it that way. Um, was was helpful in our relationship for them to kind of just be clued into that. That was my experience. So how long um, ago was all this? So I am now a going into my sophomore year of college, and I started residential during my freshman year of high school, and I was at a therapeutic boarding school for my sophomore year of high school. So four years ago to almost to the date. Okay. And how did you make the decision to take all this public and podcast about it? So when I started McLean and when I started my mental health journey, I so firmly believed that I would never feel better. Like I thought that I was destined to feel this way forever. I didn't expect to be around that much longer to feel this way. Um, There was just so much hopelessness there and no capacity to understand that things could change or that it was possible. And um, like I mentioned, as a teenager, you're in this almost perfect storm where you don't remember the beginning of your life. If this thing creeps up on you, you almost think that you felt this way forever in your lived experience. You aren't able to logic through things because your brain isn't fully developed. You feel your emotions to a stronger degree. And so... um, that perfect storm definitely was present for me. And um, I felt like things would never change. So when they did change and I wasn't just no longer depressed, I wasn't just no longer suicidal, but I was happy and I was joyful and I had a life that I loved, cared about, and that was worth living. I was like, I got to tell people about this. And a common thread throughout my journey was that while adults were telling me that it was possible, there weren't many teens that were saying that. And I was like, well, you're an adult. You don't live at home. Like you have so much autonomy over your life and you have the ability to make all these changes. And it I, it was hard to connect with. It was hard to resonate with. And I wish there was a teenager who had done what I had done, gone to the other side and was like, this is possible. And I am telling you this because I did exactly what you are doing. And so I really wanted to share my story and help be that teenage voice. And it was just kind of about the medium that I wanted to do that. And 
way back when I did that first intake meeting at McLean, my dad, who is ever the storyteller and really into that kind of stuff, was like, Sadie, you should start a podcast. And again, there was so much anger. There was so much hatred. I was like, absolutely not. And he like <laughs> fully asked the clinicians. He was like, can she have a recording device here? She's going to do a podcast. And I was mortified. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to be living with these people for the next six weeks of my life. You've just told them I'm going to be like broadcasting from my room. Podcasts are embarrassing. Like, no. Um, and he was, the, the clinicians were like, this is a mental hospital. This is a medical setting. This is so against HIPAA. You could absolutely not do that. So in, in, in some ways, your dad was uh, not aware, but he was trying to make your stay at McLean task oriented. Like you have a task to do here. You, yeah. you should start a podcast. It's, it was all about what you could do with it rather than I just need to let her be here and yes. understand that. And I need to be here too. So yeah, he was like, this is going to be so inspiring. Think about how many other teens struggle. Think about how you could help them. Um, and not the like, how are we going to help you Sadie? And so that kind of, kind of speaks to those dynamics where I did feel invalidated and unseen. Um, but yeah, a year later, I was like, I want to tell this story. I don't really know how it felt like every teenager had a YouTube. It felt like everyone was trying that vlogging thing. Instagram really didn't see like seem like the right um, route to go to, uh, to tell my story because there was just so much to say that I was like, oh, I'll give this podcasting thing a try. And so I started it while I was at the therapeutic boarding school and my friends and I would all sit on the floor and I would beg them to talk about our journeys and our stories and what worked and what didn't. And Mm-hmm. I began by just trying to paint a picture of what my struggle looked like and how things could have been different. So what warning signs to look for? How can parents support a child? What I wish I would have done differently? What skills I wish I would have known? And after probably like seven episodes, I was like, I can only talk about myself so much. Like, And so yeah. I shifted gears and created the resource that I really wish I had. So episodes with experts talking about everything from anxiety to ADHD, to relationships, to routines, to sleep. Um, I sprinkle in my own experience every five episodes and do episodes about mental health advice for college students and emotion regulation mm-hmm. and tips that I use in my, in my daily life. And so we're at 105 episodes at the time that we're recording this. And I, I love it. It's become a huge sense of purpose and it's allowed me to never stop working on my mental health because after treatment I'm still in addition to going to therapy and having all these behaviors in place every single week I'm learning something new I'm pushing the boundaries of what I believe it's really, it's really wonderful isn't yeah, it yeah it's, it's the well. best thing ever and it, it holds me accountable and I, I really do love it and so um it's interesting because when I first came out of treatment, I really just wanted to like run the other direction. I was like, I'm going to be a pediatric surgeon. I want to help people. I want to work with people, but I could never work in mental health. It would be so triggering. I would get depressed again. And when it came time to apply to colleges and pick a major, I realized that I was just, I, first of all, I hated AP chemistry. I was like, (laughs) I could never do pre-med. And then there was this part of me that was like, but I could do this mental health thing because I've been talking about it every week and dedicating hundreds of hours to it for the past year. And I'm so passionate about it. And I, I think this is really what I want to do. And so um, I'm now studying psychology at the University of Pennsylvania and doing the podcast and doing all the things to promote and share that. And um, 
extend the reach as much as possible. So yeah, that's kind of how that's happened. Well, that's wonderful. I mean, it's a, you know, when I started doing my own podcast, and well, actually, when I started blogging, I made the choice to talk about my own struggles, my anorexia, my panic disorder, the fact that I was divorced. And I do think that there is a When people hear people that they may think, well, you know, I wish I could have a podcast or, or that's somebody to look up to or, or at least um, listen to, that when you admit your own vulnerabilities, that that's very, very important. And so, and it gives you a way to, I know when I am listening to someone who is open about themselves, that it makes, it gives me permission to be as open as I can be. So that's yes. really wonderful. So where can people find you? And I have a, actually a, a pretty young audience that listens to this. So I'm hoping that's that, awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she persisted everything and anything you could want to know about TBT and teen mental health. And the podcast is on my website, shepersistedpodcast.com. You can listen to She Persisted on all the podcast platforms. And then I'm on Instagram and TikTok the most. My handle is at She Persisted Podcast. Um, And yeah, that's where you can find everything. There's a lot of content to consume. I always stay start at the newer episodes because I've gotten better at podcasting than at the (laughs) beginning Um, when I was at therapeutic boarding school, like recording on an iPod touch editing on iMovie it was a bit of a mess but now it's good I promise yeah so my first few uh, podcasts I edited and I'm like oh god these are it's, it's a it's a learning curve <laughs> and it just gives you so much like it just you see all these like big influencers and celebrities starting podcasts with teams behind them and it just gives you so much appreciation for people that do this by themselves right. and learn how to do the process and teach themselves how to interview and how to have the podcasting dynamic and continue to have enough topics to host a show. And so it's no joke. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sadie. And um, I really appreciate it. I think your message is an incredibly important one. And especially the idea that giving a teenager choice to say, I'm not going to force you to do this. Um, In fact, if I used to see adolescents a lot, and I would look at them and say, I don't really want you here if you don't want to be here. Yes. And that's such like the majority of teenagers going into treatment. I don't majority. I'm not going to say that because I don't know the exact numbers, but a lot of these programs are structured so that teens go in against their will. Mm-hmm. Wilderness programs, a lot of these therapeutic boarding schools the whole transport industry, which teenagers call getting gooned, where you're taken from your home by security guards and brought to the program. It's it's no wonder that these outcomes aren't what we want them to be, because you're putting someone in a situation that they don't want to be in, and there's no willingness, there's no hope. Like I said, you have to establish that hope and that belief and that desire to get better. Um, and and you like the data shows that if you put someone into a treatment environment that they don't want to be in, the outcomes it's things are made worse than when they're going into it. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's sad. And it's a huge change I want to see in the, the teen world. Um, for people to be more willing participants. So I have so much appreciation that you incorporate that into your clients and every therapist I've worked with who establishes that at the beginning, that's like, so yes, your parents did hire me. They are paying me, but I'm your therapist and we're here to do what you want to do. And I'm here to support you first and foremost, like teens do have agency. They have the ability to it choose to invest 
invest in their mental health or choose to stay in that um, point of struggle. And just like you would let an adult continue down that point of struggle to a certain degree, teenagers also have the right to do that because they do have that autonomy, that choice. Um, and and when they do get to the point of wanting to get better, you can be there with all the resources and support. And it's so possible. But if you throw someone into the situation when they don't want to be, it, it's it's such an unfortunate thing. Yeah, it really is. Well, I hope the message gets across to therapists, yeah. to parents, to teenagers, whomever. And I so appreciate you being on. You're a very well-spoken person who who really can you really conveying that message of that your family environment was certainly one that needed to change as well. And of course, a lot of kids don't have that either. The, the parents changing was a huge part. And the other part was just learning how to regulate my emotions, regardless of the environment. And that's something that I try to impart on my siblings now that I'm home, that yes, a home environment can be really challenging and you are very capable of allowing that emotional experience to be different mm -hmm. and if you learn the skills to cope with it if you develop the belief systems that you are deserving of love and seen and validated and have other friendships and people in your life that do allow you to feel those ways um it's very possible to thrive and cope in an environment that maybe isn't ideal and that you don't have a ton of autonomy over right all right well thank you for being here of course thank you so much for having me let's keep up with each other that'll be great yes let's do it awesome I know you found Sadie just as charming and engaging and also very passionate as I did. I want to stress that she has her own podcast called She Persisted, and she has some great guests on there, so I'll have the link to that in my show notes. I also want to say that we're going to feature the co-founder of BioOptimizers, who brings you Magnesium Breakthrough, a man named Wade Lightheart, and we're going to have an interview with him next week. His story is absolutely fascinating, and I thought it would be fun for you to hear from one of the co-founders of Magnesium Breakthrough just how it all got started. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention. As I say often, I know your time is precious. If you're enjoying self-work for the first time, or maybe you've listened for years or months, please take the five minutes it might take to leave a rating or a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. I promise you when people are scrolling through Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever, they're looking at the numbers of those ratings and reviews and seeing how many are recent. That's really important because, you know, there's some podcasts out there that may have been really great a year ago, but have faltered a bit. And so they want to see, oh, wait, no, this is a very vital podcast right now in 2022. So thank you ahead of time for that. It means so much to me when I see a new rating or a new written review. And I like to read those written reviews here on the program. So thank you again. Please take very, very good care of yourself, of those you love, and of your community. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.